Good morning, everyone. It is indeed a privilege to be here with you. And I don't know about you, but as I've had a chance to listen to these these meetings over the past few days, this has indeed been quite a a feast as we have been here day after day listening to the Word of God. Now, I'm, I'm glad that the way things turned out, that the message that I'm going to be sharing is kind of at the end because... Everything I've been hearing has been a very helpful prerequisite, especially the focus on the faith of Jesus and how essential that is. And so if you haven't had a chance to listen to uh, some of the messages that came before, then uh, I would encourage you to do that. Um, And I'm going to be taking a very narrow focus here this morning, uh, the mark of the beast versus the seal of God. And here's the narrow focus. Is it just... A conflict over days. Is it just a conflict over days? I would just invite you to bow your heads as I kneel in prayer, just asking the Lord one more time to to speak to us. Heavenly Father, Lord, we are indeed living in turbulent times. You have given us a message to bear. We thank you for the faith of Christ. We pray that your Holy Spirit will be present now. May he illuminate and guide our minds and give us wisdom concerning this question. Thank you for hearing and answering our prayers. In Jesus' name, amen. You've heard some of the testimonies of the students as they've been going out, knocking on doors, getting some Bible studies. And I can remember giving many Bible studies in which people were very, very interested and they were just lapping everything up. You, you study one topic after another, whether it's the signs of the times or whether it's the grace of God or the Bible as the only truth. Eventually, you're going to get to the study of the Sabbath. And so as you begin to study the Sabbath, you lay out the truths found in the Bible and the Old Testament, and then you're going to the New Testament. And sooner or later, the response you usually get is, I, I can't see that this really makes a difference. As you go through some of the rest of the commandments, we should honor our mother and our father. And that that makes sense, because if you don't honor the ones who brought you into this world, then you're kind of conditioning yourself not to honor your your teachers and the police and so forth and so on. So that kind of makes sense. Well, well, killing, I don't really need to explain a whole lot about that. Uh, Not committing adultery, yeah, that that causes uh, terrible uh, side effects. Um, You know, stealing bearing false witness, coveting. People can kind of process that and say, you know, all those things make a difference, but how does the day you worship on really make that much of a difference? And so it's it's with this question in mind that we're proceeding here this morning. So what kind of difference does this really make? Well, um, as I thought about this, the, the theme of our conference is is cosmic conflict, Revelation's cosmic conflict. And as you take a cursory glance at the book of Revelation, you discover that God has placed in opposition to Satan in many, many different ways. And that the beast, who has the mark, is really a counterfeiting power. For instance, you can look on the left side and you have God there. In Revelation chapter 1, verse 1 and 6, verse 2, God gives Jesus authority and power. But in Revelation chapter 13, verse 2, the beast gets his power, seat, and great authority from the dragon. 
in Psalm 113, verse 5, and Isaiah 40, verse 18, they ask the question, who is like unto the Lord? Then in Revelation 13, verse 4, they ask, who is like unto the beast? In Revelation chapter 2, verse 8, Christ died and lives. Then in Revelation 13, verse 14, the beast receives the stroke of death and, and yet lives. In Revelation chapter 1, verse 4, as John is introducing this, this great book, he refers to God as he which is, which was, and which is to come. And then in Revelation chapter 17, verse 18, it describes the beast who was and is not, and yet is coming out of the abyss. So you can see here that the beast is a counterfeiting power, and in this you get a picture of the great controversy. As we move on, you find that God has a seal, and then the beast has a mark. And then God's seal goes in the forehead, whereas the beast's mark goes in the forehead or in the hand. And it contains the name of God, the seal does. And with the beast, it contains the name of the beast. Well, the lamb has a wife, and then Satan also is married to the harlot of Babylon. And then you have the holy city, the new Jerusalem, God's church. And then you have the unholy city, Babylon, Satan's church. So you have all these counterfeiting elements basically bringing to our attention that the context in which we should understand this question about the mark of the beast and the seal of God is a context of the great controversy, and the context is who do we owe ultimately our allegiance to? Who do we owe our allegiance to? Well, how do we actually demonstrate through Scripture that the mark is placed in opposition to the seal? Well, there are a couple of main ways that we can do this. When you take a look at the commandments of God, you can compare them to what is written in Revelation chapter 13 regarding the things concerning the beast. For instance, when you look at the first commandment, it says, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. So in other words, God is the only one that is worthy of our worship. But then... In Revelation chapter 13, verse 8, it says, All the world wondered after the beast, so they actually worship the beast in opposition. The second commandment, Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image or any likeness of anything in heaven above, the earth beneath, the waters under the earth, and it goes on. So there is a prohibition against the worship of idols. Well, in Revelation chapter 13, verse 14, it says, They make an image to the beast. And in the third commandment, it talks about revering God's name. Well, in Revelation 13, verse 17, it says they receive the number of the beast's name. Well, when you get to the fourth commandment, it talks about remembering the Sabbath day. And this is God's special sign. You can find this in Exodus chapter 31, verse 13 to 18. And that's placed in opposition to the mark of the beast. There's another way that we can look at this, that we can show the relationship between the mark and the uh, sign or the seal of God. You can compare two very important chapters. And as I continue to go through this presentation, I'm kind of assuming a lot. I'm, I'm assuming that we have already looked at all the characteristics that make up the beast, and we are assuming a lot about the things of God. Uh, and so I need to do that, or else this study would take more and more and more and more and more time. So when you read Daniel chapter 7, it says that uh, the great wind strove upon the, uh, upon the seas, and then these four beasts came up out of the sea. 
And uh, it talks about the, uh, the first one was like a lion. Uh, and the second one was like a bear that had raised itself up on one side and three ribs in its mouth. And then the third one was like a leopard and it had four heads and four wings of a fowl. And then it would, uh, it would rain for a time, times, and the dividing of time in Daniel 7 verse 25. It would speak great words against the Most High. It would wear out the saints of the Most High and think to change times and laws. When you compare Daniel 7 with Revelation 13, Revelation 13 is kind of like a conglomeration. It's like you took all the beasts of Daniel 7 and you, you put them in a blender and then out came this beast in Revelation chapter 13. Okay, So interestingly enough, the beast rises up out of the sea and it has the mouth of a lion comparable to Daniel chapter 7 verse 4, has the feet of a bear, comparable to Daniel chapter 7 verse 5 with the bear, and then the body of a leopard. So the most important, I should say the most substantial part of the beast of Revelation 13 is the leopard. And the leopard represents Greece. So the lion represents Babylon, the bear Medo-Persia, the leopard represents Greece. And we're going to talk about the significance of that as we move on. You know, this beast refers to the papacy, and this is not a Seventh-day Adventist interpretation, but one which the Reformers had held and many Protestants have held. And so, But the biggest part of that is the leopard, and that's because... Greek philosophy and Greek philosophical thinking is the very structure of Catholicism. And without it, Catholicism would simply implode. And we'll speak a little bit more about that. Now, it reigns for 42 months, comparable to time, times, and the dividing of time. It would speak great things and blasphemies, just like the little horn would in Daniel chapter 7. It would make war with the saints and overcome them, just like the little horn did. And it would do this for the same amount of time. And then... Instead of thinking to change times and laws, that's placed in connection with the mark of the beast. Now, it says it would think or intend to change times and laws. I'm reading from Edwin de Kock's book, Christ and Antichrist in Prophecy and History, here, page 239, where he states... The abbreviated Ten Commandments of the Roman Church introduced directly or by implication no fewer than 15 changes. Okay? I wish I had time to go through all those. But that's really not part of the entire message for today. So 15 changes that are introduced there. In, as I'm continuing to read from Decock on page 239, he states, In Kenan and Gearman, only eight of its original 94 words were retained. That's about 8.5%. The more recent traditional catechetical formula is even worse. Of Exodus 20, verse 9 to 11, the longest commandment in the Decalogue, it has kept only five words. Remember to keep holy the, and I'll complete it in just a minute, and obliterated everything else about the biblical Sabbath. This is actually what it states. Substituting, remember to keep holy the Lord's day, is a total alteration. All the same, the Lord who made heaven and earth insists that we must rest on the seventh day of the week. The reason he gives for instituting the Sabbath is that then he rested, rejoicing over his workmanship, and wants us all to commemorate some very important facts. 
These are that he is the creator, the owner, and therefore the rightful legislator for this planet. Again, that comes from Edwin de Kock's book, Christ and Antichrist in Prophecy and History. Now, what we need to understand is that for the Roman Catholic Church, Sunday is not just a day for them. Okay, It is not just a day. I will be summarizing the Pope's encyclical. This is Pope John Paul II, who wrote his encyclical, D.S. Domini, in 1998. And that stands for the Lord's Day, or the Day of the Lord, again, taken from that encyclical that he wrote in 1998. Now, in various sections of that encyclical, it talks about Day of Christ, Day of the Church, uh, uh, Day of Eternity, uh, Day of Man, Day of days. And so um, we're going to focus on some of these things. And so the word day is like a flag. And I'll get a little more into that. Why does they connect Sunday with all of these subjects? And this is what we're going to break down at the moment. Well, I mentioned that in Revelation chapter 13, verse 2, it says that the beast that comes up out of the sea has the body of a leopard. Now, why, if this represents the Roman Catholic Church, is the biggest part of that the leopard, which stands for Greece? That's because it is the Greek philosophical structure that gives meaning to everything that the Catholic Church does. It is the very backbone of all this. Now, this may be, this may be news to some of you, but uh, as I've had a chance to study historical and systematic theology, this is very, very clear. Anyone who studies Roman Catholic theology understands that it, is, uh, it would not be possible to do Roman Catholic theology without Greek philosophy because it is literally the eyeglasses through which they process and rear up their entire doctrinal systems. So they call it Day of Christ. So how do they, how do they view Jesus? Well, Jesus' divine nature, because of Greek philosophy, is incompatible with time and space. I know that that's really, you know, that's really pie in the sky, all philosophical stuff, but it has an impact on his human nature. As a result, his human nature does not have its own center of will and consciousness. I don't have the time to go through an entire history of Christianity class on this. But if you asked our Roman Catholic friends, do you believe in the divinity of Jesus? They'd say yes. Do you believe in the humanity of Jesus? They'd say yes. And perhaps you're thinking, well, okay, they believe the same thing we do. Absolutely not. The eyeglasses through which they interpret all these things is vastly different. Incredibly different. And Sunday stands as the flag or the symbol of this difference in their interpretation of Christ, which is why they refer it to Dies Christi. Not only that, we move to the church, Dies Ecclesia. So he's linking Sunday with the day of the church, and Sunday is also historically linked with the celebration of what they call the Eucharist. It's the day of the Eucharist. All throughout Christian history, Sunday is the day of the Eucharist. Now, the Eucharist is the celebration of, we call it the Lord's Supper, but when the Pope Pope or the presider pronounces the words, this is my body, then the substance of the bread... Which is, which, is, which is not a material aspect of the bread. It's an immaterial aspect of the bread. Just like your soul 
allegedly is the, is the immaterial aspect of which your body is, you know, surrounds it. When he says, this is my body, then the substance of that bread is transformed into the substance of the divine Son of God. This is not possible without Aristotelian philosophy, and Sunday is the, the it represents the eyeglasses through which they, through which they view this. Moving on. Um, Sunday is also referred to as the eighth day. Perhaps you've heard that before. And is the image of eternity. Now, I doubt that anybody has read uh, Plato in here. But if you read Plato, the image of eternity makes a distinction between eternity and time. A qualitative distinction. You see, for the Greek mind, eternity is not made up of past to present to future. Eternity just is. It's entirely static. There is no movement. There is no succession in the Greek concept of eternity. And therefore, time is its moving image. So Sunday, as the eighth day, the Pope says, is the image of eternity, based entirely on Plato. And not only that, this also gives you a window into heaven. Heaven is an entirely static reality for them, okay? In which you approach 100% perfection, in which you're not doing anything real. You know, when I first became an Adventist Christian in my early 20s, uh, you know, I didn't like dying. Uh, nobody does. But then the picture of heaven was just, you know, you're kind of sitting on puffy clouds in this ethereal atmosphere playing harps for all the ceaseless ages of eternity. And I thought that as a young man, that's not a very attractive picture of heaven. You know, there's nothing real about it. Uh, and that's the image and the picture that you get through this through their philosophical system, of which Sunday is the uh, pattern. The Pope refers to Sunday as dies hominis, in other words, the day of man. And this stands for the philosophical interpretation of human beings, where you have this body-soul dichotomy. And then Sunday is the day of days. He says that Sunday becomes the soul of the other days of the week. And just as the soul is much more essential and perfect than the body, so Sunday, as the soul of the other days, is the day in which all the rest of the days are ordered around. Okay? So what am I trying to say here, and what is the, what is the Catholic Church really trying to say? Uh, what they're saying is that Sunday is like a flag or a symbol that stands for the unbiblical philosophical interpretation of... God, Christ, the church, heaven, eternity, man, the sacraments, and so on and so forth. It's really a wonderful systematic way of looking at things. Unfortunately, it is based on unbiblical presuppositions that are used as eyeglasses through which to then interpret all these things. So they don't just refer to Sunday as a day. Well... Let's move to Sabbath. Sabbath is not just a day either. You see, um, sometimes, you know, when we study the 28 fundamental beliefs, you know, we have the Sabbath block, 
And so we get all the texts that talk about the Sabbath, and then we line those things up. Okay, and there's, there's your Sabbath block, and then here's your heavenly sanctuary block. And so you look up and line up all the texts that talk about the sanctuary, and you put that in that block, and you put it side by side. And then there's maybe the state of the dead block, and you line up all the texts that are there, and then you put that in that block, and so forth and so on, until you get to the end of the 28 fundamental beliefs. But how do they all go together? How do they go together? And is this really an accurate picture of how we should view our doctrines? And it is not. The Sabbath is not just a day. It is made up of the sum of its parts. For instance, without God, you don't have a Sabbath because obviously there's no one to worship. Without human beings, there is no Sabbath either. Without the world, the material parts of the world, without the universe, there is no Sabbath. And without the interrelationship that exists between them, there is also no Sabbath uh, uh, as well. So all of these are the, are, the, are the components that make up the Sabbath without which there wouldn't be a Sabbath. But what is the relationship between the Sabbath as a day and all these parts? What is the relationship between them? Well, the Sabbath is not only made up of the sum of its parts, it more importantly interprets God, human beings, the universe, the world, and their relationship with each other on the basis of Scripture and not on the basis of human philosophy, most notably Greek philosophy. And so that's what we're going to get into right here at this time. So again, Sabbath is not just a day, it represents the lens through which we should view all the things that are interconnected with it. So I'm going to take you to Leviticus chapter 26 at this time, and I want you to turn there with me in your, in your Bibles. You see that text being referenced there at the bottom. So Leviticus chapter 26, and we're going to read verses 1 to 2. Leviticus 26 verses 1 to 2. It states... You you shall make you no idols, nor graven image, neither rear you up a standing image, neither shall you set up any image of stone in your land to bow down unto it. And what is the reason for why we shouldn't do that? It says, for I am the Lord your God. So don't do one, two, three, four. Don't do any of those things. What's the reason? I am the Lord your God. That means that idolatry is, uh, is incompatible with the divine presence. Now notice the very next verse. It says, you shall keep my Sabbaths and reverence my sanctuary. What's the reason that's given? I am the Lord. Very interesting. So on the one hand, you shall not make any idols. The reason given, I am the Lord. That means that the divine presence is incompatible with idols. On the other hand, it says, you shall observe, you shall keep my Sabbaths and reverence my sanctuary. And the stated reason is the exact same. I am the Lord. That must mean that the Sabbath and the sanctuary are compatible with the divine presence and don't obscure our vision of God or our vision of worship. That's what this is implying. So let's unpack this just a little bit here. So the Sabbath interprets God. Well, the Sabbath is not just, is not the same as all the other days. You know, when you go through Genesis chapter 1, you know, God creates the atmosphere. And then you know what he does then? After he forms the atmosphere, he fills it 
with creatures that inhabit the atmosphere. And then he makes the seas and the waters. He forms them, and then he fills them with creatures that inhabit them. And then he forms the land. And what has he filled the land with? Well, all kinds of creatures and then human beings that inhabit them. But when it comes to the Sabbath, what does he fill that with? He fills that with himself. He reveals himself on that day in a way that he doesn't reveal himself on any other day. See, the Sabbath is not associated with something material like this object, but with time. Something invisible. Something intangible that co-appears with reality. And so it doesn't matter where you and I are. When Sunset Friday to Sunset Sabbath comes along, we don't have to travel to Mecca or Jerusalem or any other holy place because God can meet us where we are. There's a universality then about the Sabbath. So just as the Sabbath is distinct from other days, that means God is holy and He is distinct from the things that He has created. Now, here's a $50 term. Here's some $50 terminology that I'm going to try to break down. God is infinitely and analogously temporal. What does that mean? It means that God has his own time and space. You know, before God created the universe, he had his own, he had his own space and his own time. Because time and space are a byproduct of reality. And if God exists, he's got his own time and his own space. And when he created the universe... Well, the universe has its own time and its own space, and he can freely enter into that without compromising himself and without compromising the universe either. That's all that that means. Now, you and I read our Bibles, and that that comes right off the page, but that's not how the Catholic Church understands it. That's not how philosophy understands it. God can do things in sequence. Well, yeah, he created the first day, the second day, the third day. Yeah, 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 he does all that. Well, not according to Augustine. Not according to the fathers of the Catholic Church. That's impossible for God. He interacts with us in a personal way. The Sabbath reminds us that God is also invisible. Now that invisibility will be overcome when we see Him face to face in the clouds of glory. But even when we are in glory, we are never going to get the whole of Him. Okay? We're never going to get grasp the whole of God. There will always be an eternal difference between God and creatures. And just as I've stated, God chooses to reveal himself to us on the Sabbath in a way that he does not on other days, no matter where we are located on the earth. He chooses the time. He says, I'm going to meet you at this time. I'm going to fill that day with my presence. I'm going to speak to you through my word. You and I don't get to choose and tell God what to do. When he's going to reveal himself, where he's going to reveal himself, that's his business. The Sabbath is also an immutable sign. What do I mean by that? When God instituted the Sabbath in Genesis, you know, it's not a problem in the Old Testament. Most scholars don't have an issue about God's people keeping the Sabbath in the Old Testament. But all of a sudden, when you get to the New Testament, no, it all of a sudden changes to Sunday. Well, that's the alleged theory but it has no scriptural proof. So God's people still keep the Sabbath during the New Testament and during all the centuries. And when we get to heaven in Isaiah chapter 63, 
just from one noon moon to another and from one Sabbath to another shall all flesh come and worship before me. It is an unchangeable sign. In other words, the sign never changes. That points to the fact that God never changes. If the sign doesn't change, God doesn't change. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. You can count on him. The Sabbath also interprets human nature as well. You see, all aspects of human nature are temporal. We do not have an immortal soul that's distinct from our body. We do not have an immortal soul that is immaterial, that gets released when we die and and yet lives on in some ethereal so-called place. We, We don't have that. Just as all of creation is integrated, that's what the scientists tell us. You've probably heard the term of irreducible complexity. That means that things are put together in such a way that all the parts have to be functioning at the, uh, put together of the right materials at the right time, the right place, in order for something to function. If you take away one too many things, the thing ceases to function. We are all put together in an integrated way. And as as the sign of God's creation, the Sabbath reminds us of all that. So all aspects of human nature are completely integrated. Just as the Sabbath is an immutable sign that points to an unchanging God, it also points to the fact that male and female are immutable aspects of our nature. They do not change. Now, I can understand how folks that don't keep the Sabbath walk away with the idea that perhaps I'm biologically male, but then I can identify as female. But how Sabbath keepers will come to that conclusion, I really have no idea. Our identity is grounded in our biology. It says he made them male and female. These are immutable aspects of who we are. Who I am is grounded in my biology. There is no dichotomy between my biology and my identity and what I feel my identity is. If you posit a dichotomy between your biology and who you think you are, you are proceeding exactly on the principles of Roman Catholic theology and this body-soul distinction. Moving on. The Sabbath also interprets the world and God's relationship with the world. You see, God's being is not to be confused with the being of the world. You know, no matter how sophisticated this this MacBook computer is, your brain is superior to it in vastly infinite ways. The Sabbath reminds us that there is a distinction between the Creator and the creation. Just as the Sabbath is an immutable sign of an immutable God, it is also the sign of an immutable creation. It means that he has created things to function on the basis of fixed laws. These things are not ever changing except man interferes with them. So no theistic evolution involved here. Uh, That's incompatible with the Sabbath. Now, in theistic evolution, what's taught is that God is actually coming to an awareness of himself through the evolutionary process. Okay? 
That's, that's basically Vatican II. That's, that's, that's Roman Catholic theology in Vatican II. It's incompatible for a Sabbath keeper. Uh, uh, to, to, it, it's incompatible to keep the Sabbath and then still believe in theistic evolution. Those two things just do not go together. Moving on. The Sabbath interprets salvation as well. As an institution that is linked with time and sequence, the Sabbath is compatible with a salvation history that goes from creation and then the fall, the cross, the resurrection, the heavenly ministries in the holy and most holy places, the second coming, the millennium, and the new heavens and the new earth. It's compatible with that sequence because the Sabbath points to the fact that God does things in sequence. All those aspects are part of the plan of salvation. Moving on. It was read in our scripture reading that um, those that are ready to stand would have the seal of God in in their foreheads. That's Revelation chapter 14, verse 1. So the seal of God would go in their foreheads. The Father's name would be written there. And that stands for the character of Christ. So the Sabbath represents, the uh, the seal is represented there in the forehead, representing the character transformation into the image of Christ. Just as it took God time to create, the Sabbath points to the fact that time is necessary for him to recreate us in his image and after his likeness. As a teacher, uh, you know, whenever there's a paper due, I would, I would tell the students, now, if you're a gardener, you don't want to be planting today and harvesting next week because it isn't going to happen. So if you begin to write your paper a week before it's due, I can pretty much read what kind of paper you're going to write. I can write your paper for you at that point. There's not going to be the development of thought and order and system to it. It's just not going to happen because most, most of us don't have those kinds of brains. Most of us are just mortals. And so we, we have to start way in advance and we have to plan. And so just like with our salvation, and that was beautifully represented in some of Brother D. Casper's messages. You know, we are perfect at every stage of our development. First the blade, then the ear, then the full corn in the ear. And so just as the Sabbath involves time, it takes time for God to recreate us into his own image. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 12 to 16, it says, We are renewed day by day. That's what it states. Ezekiel chapter 20, verse 12. Ezekiel chapter 20, verse 12 states this. Ezekiel chapter 20, verse 12, it says, Moreover, also I gave them my Sabbaths to be a sign between me and them that they might know that I am the Lord that sanctify them. To sanctify means to make holy. Now, look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 23. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and Verse 23, the Apostle Paul here states, And the very God of peace sanctify you, holy, and I pray God your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless unto the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So the Sabbath stands for entire consecration. 
The Sabbath means that it is important how we treat our bodies. Why? Because there is a cause and effect relationship between what I put into my body, what I watch, and my spiritual state. But that's not true for the other system. In body-soul dichotomy, you see, if your soul is eternal, and if your soul is good, and if your soul is indestructible, you can do the math. It doesn't matter what you do with your body. Can you make your soul any better? If it's eternally good and eternally indestructible, no, you can't make it any better. So there is a dichotomy between what you do with your body and how it affects your soul. Now, let me just break down the dichotomy thing for a moment. Suppose you're trying to, you're trying to design a car. And you're trying to design to, go, to, to make that car go as fast as possible. Does the color pink or blue have any causal relationship to the speed of the car? No, it doesn't. Now, if you decide to put a turbo in that engine, well, yeah, yeah, you've got an advantage over the other guy that has no turbo in the engine. That's causally related. But if you decide to paint the car pink, that is not going to affect the speed of the car. Likewise, in that system, what you say, what you do, how you treat your body has nothing to do with your salvation. And with your soul. But since we don't believe in a body-soul dichotomy, since when we examine creation, it is all integrated, since the Sabbath is a sign of our sanctification, and Paul here says that he's praying that we would be wholly sanctified, spirit, soul, and body, and be preserved blameless under the coming of our Lord. The Sabbath is a sign of that sanctification. Moving on. The Sabbath interprets Scripture as well. Just think about the creation story, and I'm going to give you a contrast between how an 8- to 10-year-old would interpret the first chapter or two of Genesis and how our Roman Catholic friends are going to interpret it. So you take any child that, is, that has no idea of all of these philosophical presuppositions, and you ask them to read Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2, and you ask them, uh, does God do things in sequence, one after the other? They'll say, yeah, because he did something on the first day, and he did something on the second day. The data is screaming at you. <laughs> That's what it's saying. It is literally screaming at you and telling you, God did this first, and he did that second, and, and how long is the Sabbath for? Well, it's for a day, an entire day. Right, okay. Um, does it say anywhere in there that the Sabbath is for millions and millions and millions and millions and millions of years? Is that, can you read that young child in there? No, it, it doesn't seem to, it, it just doesn't say that. So the Sabbath stands for the literal, the historical, the material, because that's what the data says. Now, when Augustine reads that, he says, yeah, I know, but that's, I know that, that that's what the data says. But since God can't act in the sequence of past, present, to future, what it's really saying is that God created, well, well, Augustine, what about the rest of these parts, like the first day, the second day? Oh, that's Moses' cultural understanding of what took place. So how do we read the Bible? That Well, you read it allegorically. Okay. So the Sabbath leaves no room for an allegorical interpretation. That's why we accept the seven-day creation. That's why we accept that there is a literal, real sanctuary in heaven. 
Because you're reading it and you're like, okay, yeah, well, it reads just like, a, like it's a real building, albeit different than the one here on earth, of course. But it's no less real. But not according to Aquinas, 13th century Dr. Angelicus of the Roman Catholic Church. When he reads those texts, he says, no, those are metaphors and symbols. It's interesting when you get to uh, Leviticus chapter 11 and verse 7, where the Bible says, don't eat swine. You know what the early church said? Well, that doesn't mean don't eat pork. It means don't hang around people that are swine. That's what that means. So you have an allegorical interpretation. So the data is screaming one thing, but they're saying that's not what it means. It's completely allegorical. So the Sabbath is a sign for a plain reading of the Bible. Okay? And so if we're taking something that is designed to be read as real, and we're allegorizing it and saying that's not what it means, then how is that in harmony with the spirit of the Sabbath? Let's move, let's move on. The Sabbath interprets heaven and eternity. You see, heaven is a real place where we do real things. From one new moon to another and from one Sabbath to another shall all flesh come and worship before me. This is diametrically opposed to Hinduism, Buddhism, and Catholicism where you arrive at 100% static perfection. Why? Because for them there is no time and space. Time and space and the material creation are things that you need to get away from because those are the things that bring you down. So when you ultimately get to heaven, there is no time and there is no space. I mean, I can read you all the crazy stuff they say, but I'm just summarizing it. That's what they say. And all kinds of movies are made about this reality, okay, whether it's The Matrix or Lucy, or whatever these movies are. When they describe this ultimate reality, the man has arrived. 100% static perfection. No room for any other development and growth. Now you compare that to what the Bible says. And the Bible says that heaven will be a ceaseless approaching unto God through Christ. Our development will never cease. Our love for God will never cease. Our appreciation for Him and what He has done in the plan of salvation will never cease. We've climbed one mountain. There's going to be another Everest. It's exciting. The Sabbath interprets heaven and eternity. I want to go to another very important distinction between the Mark and the seal. Let's look at the methods employed in the final battle. Because, again, we're exploring the question, is this just a matter of days? Is it just a matter of days? What are the methods that are employed in the final battle? Well, let's turn to some Bible texts. Let's go to Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 12 to 15. This will be talking about the Sabbath. So Deuteronomy chapter 5, verses 12 to 15. This is the giving of the commandments for the second time. And you'll notice that there is a a difference in how the Sabbath commandment is recorded. It says, Keep the Sabbath day to sanctify it as the Lord thy God hath commanded thee. Six days shalt thou labor and do all thy work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord thy God. In it thou shalt not do any work. Thou, nor thy son, nor thy daughter, nor thy manservant, nor thy maidservant, nor thine ox, nor thine ass, nor nor any 
of thy cattle, nor thy stranger that is within thy gates, that thy manservant and thy maidservant may rest as well as thou. And remember that thou wast a servant in the land of Egypt. In the New King James, it says you were a slave in the land of Egypt. And that the Lord your God brought you out thence through a mighty hand and by a stretched out arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. The Sabbath is associated with freedom, freedom from Egypt, freedom from the slavery of sin. That's what the Sabbath is associated with. You can go back to Leviticus chapter 25, Leviticus chapter 25, and we'll read verses 8 to 10. This is speaking about the Jubilee. Leviticus chapter 25, verse 8, it says, And thou shalt number seven Sabbaths of years unto thee, seven times seven years, and the space of the Sabbath of years shall be unto thee forty and nine. Then shalt thou cause the trumpet of the Jubilee to sound in the tenth day of the seventh month. In the day of atonement you shall make the trumpet sound throughout all your land, and you shall hallow the fiftieth year and proclaim liberty throughout all the land. Unto all the inhabitants thereof, it shall be a jubilee unto you, and you shall return every man unto his possession, and you shall return every man unto his family. Ultimate freedom. Jesus picks this up in Luke chapter 4. I'm going to Luke chapter 4 and verses 16 to 18. Luke chapter 4, verses 16 to 18. It says, and he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up for to read. And there was delivered unto him the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised. And then in verse 19, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. Freedom. You know, I was just watching the news the other day. You know, they're having all kinds of protests in Cuba. They've been under that regime for about 60 years. You can imagine what it's like. Cuba, other places like Romania in the past, or North Korea and China. I mean, your heart breaks to people who can't make the decisions that you and I can make economically and politically. You know, when God set up this country, it says in Revelation 13, verse 11, that this, this, this beast that comes up out of the earth would have two horns like a lamb, representing Protestantism and Republicanism. This is not a democracy. This is a democratic republic that is based on unalterable laws. And freedom is freedom, whether it's political, whether it's economic. But Jesus wants to give more than that as well. He wants to give ultimate freedom from sin. Well, what about the methods of the beast? Revelation 13, 11 to 18, notice. Then I saw another beast coming up out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb and spoke like a dragon. And he exercises all the authority of the first beast in his presence and causes the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast whose deadly wound was healed. He performs great signs so that he even makes fire come down from heaven on earth in the sight of men. And he deceives those who dwell on the earth by those signs which he was granted to do in the sight of the beast 
telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image to the beast who was wounded by the sword and lived. He was granted to give breath to the image of the beast, that the image of the beast should both speak and cause as many as would not worship the image of the beast to be killed. And he causes all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and bond, to receive a mark on their right hand or on their foreheads, and that no man might buy or sell except one who has the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. Here is wisdom. Let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man. His number is 666. Very interesting statement here in Great Controversy, page 591. It says, God never forces the will Or the conscience. But Satan's constant resort to gain control of those whom he cannot otherwise seduce is by is compulsion by cruelty. Through fear or force, he endeavors to rule the conscience and to secure homage to himself. To accomplish this, he works through both religious and secular authorities, moving them to the enforcement of human laws in defiance of. The law of God. That's Great Controversy, page 591. So you have a universal issue here. Sunday worship, and no one is exempt. Free and poor, rich. Uh, 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 Yeah, you got it. I'm sorry. You got the contrasts. The main principle employed, fear, force, deception, intimidation, bribery, those are the methods that are employed. Now, friends, it's not just Sunday, Sunday worship that's the problem. I was speaking with a professor not too long ago, and he really crystallized it for me. It says Sunday represents an abuse of authority. That's not happening right now, but it's going to be happening very soon. So it's not just that Sunday is placed in opposition to the Sabbath. It's that the main principles employed are fear, force, deception, and intimidation. These are methods that God doesn't employ. And the result, you cannot buy or sell or assemble uh, for worship according to the dictates of your conscience. That is forbidden. Now, friends, if you think that those methods are just future, that is not the case, my friend. That is not the case. We've been experiencing a health issue that has become universal for the first time in this world's history. And what are the principles that are being employed? Fear. Force, deception, not allowing the opposite side to speak, censoring. Are those God's methods? I'm not debating the merits or the demerits of either the vaccine or whether COVID is real or not. That's not on the table. What kind of methods are being employed? And what has been the result? You can't buy, you can't sell. You can't assemble for worship according to the dictates of your conscience. That has been happening. Now, this one here, this hits a little close to home. Wall Street Journal, June 14. Just some examples, 2021. Some 450 U.S. colleges and universities, including our institutions, this is in the Wall Street Journal, have announced policies mandating that all students be fully vaccinated against COVID-19 before the fall semester. Again, I'm not talking about the merits and demerits of the vaccine. The issue here is forced. With some requiring vaccination now for the summer term, 
Schools have for decades required vaccination against infectious diseases, but according to the Wall Street Journal, these mandates, these present ones, are unprecedented and unethical. It goes on. Never before have colleges insisted that students or employees receive an experimental vaccine as a condition of attendance or employment, and that is what it is. All three of them are only approved under emergency use authorization. And do you know what the Federal Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act says? It says that every employee or student should be given the option to accept or refuse administration. So what's being done, according to federal law, is illegal. Dr. Anthony Fauci was asked recently on CNN whether compulsory vaccine orders for Americans were a good idea. He responded by saying he's in favor of that. He states, I have been of this opinion and I remain of that opinion that I do believe at the local level there should be more mandates. There really should be. In Reuters, again, the date today is July 18th. I didn't give you the date on this. Police in Paris clashed with protesters railing against President Emmanuel Macron's plan to require a COVID-19 vaccine certificate or negative PCR test to gain entry to bars, restaurants, and cinemas from next month. And the people are just up in arms. In the land of my forefathers in Greece, I saw a uh, Twitter communication The streets of Athens and Thessaloniki were packed with thousands and thousands of people protesting these forced vaccinations. Think about it. They are treating you as guilty when you haven't been proven to be spreading any disease whatsoever. You are guilty. That turns jurisprudence on its head. And that makes the powers that be manufacture anything they want for you to be able to prove your innocence. That's not the way it should work. Maybe you've yelled at your wife. Maybe we should install some cameras in your home because you know what? You might beat her. Maybe, maybe you took a paddling to the kids. Maybe we should just arrest you and just get it over with because we know that in the future, this kind of pattern or behavior... You know, you're going to commit some kind of crime. Why don't we just deal with it right now? And so the president, uh, the prime minister of Greece says, after about a year and a half, no one can claim ignorance about coronavirus anymore, said Greece's prime minister, Kyriakos Mitsotakis. The country will not shut down again due to attitudes adopted by certain people. It is not Greece that's a danger, but unvaccinated Greeks. That, to me, sounds chilling. So he's just pronounced thousands and millions of people as a danger and a menace to society. Doesn't that sound a lot like this statement right here? Different context, but the methods seem the same. Those who honor the Bible Sabbath will be denounced as enemies of law and order, as breaking down the moral strengths of society, causing anarchy and corruption, and calling down the judgments of God upon the earth. Their conscientious scruples will be pronounced obstinacy, stubbornness, and contempt of authority. They will be accused of disaffection toward the government. Ministers who deny the obligation of the divine law will present from the pulpit the duty of yielding obedience to the civil authorities as ordained of God. 
In legislative halls and courts of justice, commandment keepers will be misrepresented and condemned. A false coloring will be given to their words. The worst construction will be put upon their motives. Great Controversy, page 592. So is this just a matter of days? On the one column, God is the creator. On the other column, Sunday stands for the philosophical idol, an interpretation of God. Sabbath, human nature is integrated, the immutability of male and female. Sunday is a flag or a symbol for the body-soul dichotomy. Sabbath stands for the fact that God created everything in nature under fixed and unalterable laws. But Sunday, for evolution. Sabbath stands for the entire consecration of the human being, body, soul, and spirit. But in Sunday, as long as you receive the sacraments, only your soul is benefited. It doesn't matter how you treat your body. Sabbath is a symbol, when, it, when we talk about Scripture, of the plain reading of Scripture. But Sunday, of the allegorical reading. Sabbath is a sign that heaven is a real place in which we do real things. But Sunday spiritualizes that entire reality. And in this last day conflict, Sabbath is a sign of freedom that can only come through Christ, much more than the political or economic freedom, but a freedom from the slavery of sin. And Sunday, the methodology is fear and force. My friend, it is not just a matter of days. The question is, which banner will you choose? Which banner will you choose? There is no middle ground. God does not do anything in partnership with the devil. You and I must choose whom we will serve. And I pray that with each passing day, that we will come to the point, no matter what comes, where we will choose God. The Sabbath is just a manifestation of our loyalty to him in all of these areas. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, We talk about the conflict that is coming, but in many ways it is already here. We pray that you will lead us, guide us, convict us. Help us to know that in our own strengths we can do nothing. As the Sabbath points to the creative power of God, it shows us that only through that recreative power can we be transformed into his image And have the seal of God placed in our foreheads and be completely transformed. May we choose that each and every day. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www dot audioverse dot org.